so grateful that you have called us to this place and this time on this day in which we remember that our Lord Jesus Christ, who came into our world to bear our sins on the cross, rose from the dead. We thank you for that everlasting love which is from all eternity, which is no second thought, no scrambling to fix something that unexpectedly became broken. But in your eternal counsels, before the world was created, you had ordained the Lord Jesus Christ to be the one who would represent his people even in their own nature. Oh, how we do thank you for his coming into the world. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We assemble, even as a congregation, one out of all the congregations throughout the world that are spread throughout the earth. We worship you and praise you and adore you and come humbly in your presence, knowing that you are the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God. You have made all of the starry hosts. You have made the world this earth for us to live in with all of its beauty and all of its splendor. Oh, Lord, even in its fallen state, how we see your wisdom and glory manifest in the rivers, in the trees, in the fruitfulness of the earth. We see, O oh Lord, your provisions for us, even in our daily lives, the lives that we live in common with all men, you and your common grace provide richly for a fallen and sinful people. We do thank you for that, for the roofs that we have over our heads, the food that you have provided for us to eat, the clothes that we wear, and the rich joys of family. We thank you that you have given each of us to one another in Christ, and that you have united us together in the body of Christ. And Lord, what a joy it is to discover the great and mighty ways in which you work in the hearts of one another, and to rejoice in that which you are doing in others, and to seek, O oh Lord, that we might be your servants for the building up of the body of Christ. How we do thank you for the way you have richly gifted this congregation. We thank you for all those who serve as teachers. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would richly bless them with a zeal for your most holy gospel. And we ask, O oh God, that even our young people who are among us this day, from the tiniest little infant to those who are older, yet, O oh Lord, we each and every one of us need your powerful working in our hearts. We do pray for our children. We ask that you would work mightily in them. May it be that the things that they hear 
are not just common and do not just float above them with no personal relation or connection, but that you, by your Holy Spirit, would bring your word alive in the hearts of our children, that they might know you, who is life, life indeed to know and to love, that they may love you, and that they may love you more than anything else, more than anything in all of the world, for all of the world and its shining objects, all of the things that it offers to us and all of the lies and the ways in which we are tempted to worship idols. Oh, Lord, protect us from that, we pray. Zealously guard our hearts by your great power, oh, Lord. Protect us from lies, from deceit, and from the evil one. We bring to you our concerns and our prayers as a congregation. We think especially of Deb Connor, who has been suffering pain in, in her, uh, various ways. And Lord, as she is expecting uh, to have uh, procedures done soon, we ask, oh Lord, that you would provide for her relief. And we pray also for Lindsay Connor, lifting her up to you as she has been having uh, migraine headaches, and we ask, Lord, that the medicines that she takes might help her. We thank you, O oh Lord, for those in our midst who are with child, and we pray your blessing upon their pregnancy, upon Christina and Sarah. O oh Lord, we lift up to you our brother Stan Zalewski, thanking you for the surgery that he had this week. We pray that the healing process in his uh, carpal tunnel surgery and in his wrist that that would go forward uh, well and soon, and that he would soon be able to be back, uh, able to do the things that he loves to do. We pray for our sister, Joanne Walsh, who suffers from MS. Oh, Lord, please be with her day by day. Encourage and bless her heart, we pray. We thank you for Pat Murray who is with us uh, this morning. And we know, O oh Lord, that uh, she deals with uh, multiple health issues. We pray that you would bless and be with her. And we pray for um, the son of Frankie and Jesse Rivera, Jazz, who is recovering from reconstructive surgery on his jaw. We lift him up to you. O oh Lord, would you show mercy and grace to him? Would you heal his body? We pray for Jesse as she is with him that, oh Lord, that their time together would be sweet. We pray for the conflict in Ukraine. We ask, oh Lord, that you would bring it to cessation. Oh Father, how our hearts are grieved when we see the devastation caused by war and the human suffering. And Lord, we know you are sovereign over all things and none of this is apart from your divine plan for the world. And yet, O oh Lord, we pray that you would gather your church in the midst of such suffering, that your people would be built up and the church there in Ukraine would be built up during this time. And as we have been asked to pray for those who are bringing the supplies for Ukraine to Tennessee this morning, we lift up to you uh, Dana and Mandy Bradford, who are traveling with U-Haul tomorrow, setting out for, for Tennessee. Lord, may those supplies that have so much work and sacrifice and effort have gone into the gathering of these things, we pray, that they would reach 
uh, their destination and would be of great help to those who are suffering. Oh Lord, we pray for the furtherance of the gospel even in our own area. We pray for your spirit to work mightily in the churches in our presbytery and uh, other churches that we are in fellowship with who are uh, preaching your word. May it be, Lord, that uh, you would minister powerfully and gather your saints and build up the body of Christ. And may it be that we uh, see and know from our own eyes and ears and experience that you are at work mightily. We thank you for the ministry of ESL as it has been mentioned We do pray, we give thanks for the growth, and we pray for its continued, uh, the blessing, that it would be a blessing to those who attend, especially we ask, Lord, that that someone who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ would come into contact with the living gospel and would be saved. We do pray that you would bless all those who work so diligently at this, as well as uh, on the various committees of our congregation. Bless, we pray. And now, Lord, as we continue our worship of you, please be with us by your spirit and by your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's join together standing as we do and sing hymn number 172, Speak, O Lord.
invite you to turn to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 14. 1 Kings, chapter 14. Our scripture reading will be verses 1 through 20, 1 Kings, chapter 14. I hope you don't experience a sense of whiplash going from the book of Revelation to 1 Kings, but we are doing 1 Kings in the evening service, and uh, I'm preaching because Pastor Rob has been off this week, and I've been in the book of 1 Kings, so I'm bringing that to you this morning. And uh, just to kind of orient you to where we are in Israel's history, Remember that Solomon's son, Rehoboam, made a mess of things. After Solomon had died, Rehoboam took over as king. And uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, the Lord tore away from Rehoboam. And uh, Israel has now, in the north, developed its own political life. And the southern kingdom continues to be ruled by Rehoboam in Judah. And so we are at a place where in the history of the northern kingdom, Jeroboam is afraid that the continuing influence of the worship at the temple will cause the people of the northern kingdom to desire to reunite with the southern line of David and the worship of the temple in in Jerusalem. And you can understand the hold that had, or should have had, on the people of the northern kingdom. So he establishes his own shrine. He uses golden calves that he sets up in Bethel, in the southern part of the northern kingdom, and Dan in the northern part of the northern kingdom, giving them multiple places to worship. And also... uh, obviously committing a gross sin against God and setting up uh, the golden uh, calves in those places for the people to come and to offer sacrifices. He also established a priesthood that where basically anyone who wanted could become a priest, whereas we know in God's law that it is only of the line of, of Levi Um, that the priesthood is to come. And so Jeroboam has been confronted by a prophet in chapter 13 and told that this this shrine that he has built and this altar is going to be destroyed by God. And uh, it's going to be destroyed by King Josiah some hundreds of years later. And uh, Jeroboam's heart is hardened. He's He has no knowledge of God, and he is bound and determined to continue on his way of of this false worship that he has introduced to the people in the north. And so now uh, what has happened is that Jeroboam is at a place where he is adamant, his heart is hard to God, and he is going to proceed anyway in what he is doing. And so in chapter 14, we come to uh, the place where God is going to uh, bring 
a condemnation, a judgment upon Jeroboam. And uh, it is a word that will make his ears tingle and will be extremely unbearable for him to hear. What an awful place for any of us to be, to be so hardened in our disobedience against God that when God comes to us with his word, we hear words of judgment and that are unbearable to us. So in this chapter 14, we'll begin with verse 1 and read through verse 20. Hear the word of God. At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise, disguise yourself, that it, may, that it not be known that you are the wife of Jeroboam. And go to Shiloh. Behold, Ahijah, the prophet, is there, who said of me that I should be king over this people. Take with you ten loaves, some cakes, and a jar of honey, and go to him, and he will tell you what shall happen to the child. Jeroboam's wife did so. She arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. Now Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were dim because of his age. And the Lord said to Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you, concerning her son, for he is sick. And thus and thus shall you say to her. And when she came, she pretended to be another woman. And when Hijah heard the sound of her feet as she came in at the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another? For I am charged with unbearable news for you. Go tell Jeroboam, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you have not been like my servant David who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all who were before you, and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger, and have cast me behind your back. And therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam, and I will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel." And I will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. Anyone belonging to the house of Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. For the Lord has spoken it. Arise, therefore, go to your house, and when your feet enter the city, The child shall die, and all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. For he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave, because in him 
there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel, in the house of Jeroboam. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel, who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today, and henceforth the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water, and root up Israel out of this good land that he gave to their fathers, and scatter them beyond the Euphrates, because they have made their Asherim, provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. Then Jeroboam's wife arose and departed, came to Tirzah. And as she came to the threshold of the house, the child died. And all Israel buried him and mourned for him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant, Ahijah, the prophet. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he warred, how he reigned, Behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. And the time that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years. And he slept with his fathers, and Nadab his son reigned in his place. So ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Eternal God, our Heavenly Father, as we see the actions of Jeroboam, in the hardness of his heart, and the deception with which he sought to deceive you. We see the judgments that you pronounce against him. O oh Lord, may it be that that Holy Spirit that inspired these words would so work in our hearts to break through all of our own deception, all of the hardness of our own hearts, that we would be converted that we would be changed. For Lord, we are no different in our own nature than Jeroboam was. And we ask, O oh God, that we might hear these words and that we might respond to them in repentance and a true and saving faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I would like for us to consider uh, this chapter under three headings. The first is Jeroboam's problem and his plan for solving it. Second, an unbearable word heard by Jeroboam. And third, the Lord's mercy to Jeroboam's house in spite of his rebellion. So first, Jeremiah's problem and his plan for solving it. Second, the unbearable word that Jeroboam must hear. And third, the Lord's mercy to this little child of Jeroboam, this son that was sick. Uh, let us then uh, consider these things. First of all, Jeroboam's problem we're told 
in verse 1 of this chapter that Abijah, and his name is Abijah, we have Ahijah the prophet, Abijah is the son of Jeroboam. And it is considered that he probably was a young boy. And he was very sick, and he was so sick. He was so sick that his mother, in desperation, follows the advice of Jeroboam and leaves her son and goes to seek advice of the prophet Ahijah. The prophet who had been instrumental in telling Jeroboam of God's plan to make him king of the northern nation of Israel. And this prophet, now old, his eyes are dim, he can't see, and yet he can hear. That's one thing that comes through in this, that his eyes are dim and he can't see, but he can hear very well. The two things that he hears, he hears the word of God speaking in his ear, and he hears footsteps approaching. So Jeroboam's problem is that he has a sick son who is heir of the throne, most likely. And Jeroboam's solution is that he wants to hear from this prophet that he had heard from some years ago telling him that he would be king. And yet he doesn't want to go himself. You wonder why? Why would he not want to go to Ahijah himself? No doubt he knew full well that if Ahijah knew that Jeroboam was approaching him, he would hear something he didn't want to hear. And so, isn't that the way we are? <laughs> we avoid conflict, and we avoid situations that make us feel uncomfortable. And so he uses his wife, and he thinks that if his wife will go to Ahijah, that she may be able, if she disguises herself as another woman, to get a good word from the prophet. That's the goal, to get a good word from the prophet from, uh, about his sick son. And so he thinks, well, if there's no connection with me and she disguises herself, and if I give her gifts and she goes with gifts, but notice they're not the gifts of a king to a prophet. They're the gifts of a common person to a prophet. And he thinks, well, if I can trick the prophet into saying something good about my son, how strange. Because the obvious question presents itself to anyone who reads and knows this. How would it be that a prophet could know the future concerning this sick son and not be able to see through the disguise of Jeroboam's wife? Another thing that's very telling in this is that Jeroboam's wife's name is never used. She's described as the wife of Jeroboam. It's something that we ought to do when we read the Bible is to notice the people whose names are used. She is definitely, her name is not mentioned at all in our text. She comes to the door of Ahijah, he can hear the crunch in the walkway. He hears her footsteps, 
And even before she enters the door, she says, he says to her, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another? Wow. Not what she expected to hear. Right away. Right away. Her whole plan is foiled. What is going to happen? He's told me my true identity. Matthew Henry says, those who think by their disguises to hide themselves from God will be wretchedly confounded when they find themselves disappointed on the day of discovery. It's a lesson for us all, isn't it? There is a day of discovery always. We are profoundly prone to self-deception and to disguise. We convince ourselves of our own ignorance, of our own innocence, and we convince ourselves of so many things that are not in line with what is true and what is right. But there is a day in which all of our self-deception will be stripped away from us. It is a day when the Lord sees through. It is a day when all of our pretending no longer works. It is a day in which the one who has pure eyes can see to the very depths and see your hidden motives and your thoughts. There's a verse about this in the book of Hebrews. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We are dealing not with an old, sightless prophet who we're trying to fool into giving us a word that is pleasant to our ears. We are dealing here with the living God. Always remember that this, he is the one in whom you live and move and have your being. We live in the presence of the living God. He sees us and he sees us not as we convince ourselves that we are, but he sees us as we really are, to the very depths and to the core of our being. What a frightening place to be. What a frightening place to be. Matthew Henry again says, sinners now appear in the garb of saints every Sunday. You know, I heard someone, we were talking, had a conversation before the service, and it is so often, it is the case that, that outsiders to a Christian congregation, outsiders to any particular congregation, who are really struggling with things in their lives, think that everybody that comes to church has all their problems in tow. You look like it. You're so decent and respectable on the outside. 
It's one of the things that keeps people away from these kinds of gatherings. It's because we don't appear as God sees us in front of each other. We don't walk around with placards, do we? Say, I struggle with this sin, or I struggle with that sin. We come I, with a tie and a coat, and we look respectable. But in the eyes and in the presence of the living God, we all come as broken sinners. Jeroboam was, and his wife was. And Matthew Henry says, Sinners now appear in the garb of saints and are taken to be such, but how will they blush and tremble when they find themselves stripped of their false colors? What a terrible place for Jeroboam's wife. But what a terrible place for all of us in the presence of the living God. May it be that the day of discovery comes sooner for you rather than later. Because that's the day of hope. When we're stripped of our pretenses and our false righteousness. And we know we have nothing before the living, holy God. It's only then that we will flee to the only one who can save us. That is the Lord Jesus Christ, whose righteousness is able to cover the sins of the most awful, broken sinner. So if you are here this morning and that is your condition, please know that you are with others in whom you they also share that. We all share that, and we have fled for refuge to the living God who has sent his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to cover us with a righteousness not our own, but belongs to him. Well, Jeroboam has not yet been brought to a place of humility, and so Ahijah must now give an unbearable word. And this begins in verse 6. And in verse 6, Ahijah says, I am charged with unbearable news for you. Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. An unbearable word Ahijah is charged with. I want us to note, first of all, the solemnity of the moment. Ahijah here announces to Jeroboam's wife that as she has been sent to him, he has been sent to her. And the word charged is actually sent. I have been sent by God, with a word for you and your husband. I have been charged with unbearable news. He solemnly testifies that he comes not as he is in his blind frailty of old age, but he comes as a prophet of the living God. I have been sent to you. 
It is a wonderful thing when God directs his word to you. It is a mercy to you that at some time in your life, God's word has come to you in your heart. And it wasn't by accident. It was because God sent someone with that word. That is the situation here. And if Jeroboam's wife would only really listen, and if Jeroboam would only really listen, which none of, it, none of that takes place, the results could be so very different. He testifies, the prophet does, that he comes with a message from the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, Israel may be in idolatry, but he is still the God of Israel. Israel's truth and reality isn't determined by Israel. It is determined by God, and God claims Israel as his, and that is true for everyone whom God has brought into covenant with himself. He claims you when we bring our children to the Lord. We pronounce God's name, and we apply the the water upon them. It's God's claim upon them. And so God here claims the northern kingdom of Israel in spite of her rebellion. I, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I am Israel's God, and I have a message for you that is unbearable. The Lord begins by telling Jeroboam of his kindness to him. He reminds him that he is the one who gave him the kingdom. He says, I tore the kingdom away, verse 8, from the house of David, and I gave it to you, and yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. The Lord reminds him of the favor and the goodness that he had bestowed upon him. And again, Matthew Henry makes this comment. He says, whether we keep an account of God's mercies to us or no, he does. We are so profoundly ungrateful. You have been blessed in so many ways. And yet, you and I return thanks for so little. And Jeroboam is that way very much so. He is totally oblivious to the goodness of God to him and the position that God has put him in. He's oblivious to it, just as we are so oblivious to God's kindness to us. You got up this morning, you put your feet on the floor, you got dressed, you ate, and you are carrying on your life because you live and you move because of the very goodness of God. God reminds Jeroboam of his kindness to him. And I love this statement that I just shared with you from Matthew Henry. Whether we keep an account of God's mercies to us or no, he does. And he will set them in order before us, Matthew Henry says, to our great confusion if we are ungrateful. God will remind each and every covenant child who has been brought up into the family of God and has heard the word of God over and over again, I have done this for you. 
I caused you to be born into a Christian home. I brought you into connection with the gospel. I brought you in connection with my word year after year after year after year. God will line up all of the benefits and he will remind us of what he has done for us on the great day in which we stand before him. To our great shame, because we are so profoundly ungrateful. And so he now charges Jeroboam with this terrible thing. Verse 9, you have done evil above all who were before you, and you have gone and made for yourself other gods, metal images, provoking me to anger, and have cast me behind your back. The heart of the Lord's charge against Jeroboam is that he has done that which is evil. He has done that which is evil above and beyond what all others have done before him. He's provoked the Lord to anger, and get this, he casts the Lord behind his back. He wants nothing to do with the God of Israel, and he's cast him behind his back, and this has caused God to be provoked to anger. God has entered into a relationship with Jeroboam and with Israel. And at the core of that relationship is an exclusive faithfulness, an exclusive relationship of covenant bond in which God has bound himself to the blessing of Israel. And he wants that exclusive love from her and from you and from me. And he's zealous for it. He wants it, and he's zealous for it. In human marriage, if a husband were to learn that his wife had an alternative lover, and he did not show any concern about it, he would be showing that he does have no love for his wife. God is married to Israel. And he is zealously and passionately in, in a loving relationship with Israel. And he wants the response of his people. And that divine jealousy exists. God's jealousy is not a matter of frustration, envy, or spite, J.I. Packer says, as human jealousy is. But it instead, he says, Packer writes, it is a praiseworthy zeal to preserve something supremely precious. It is a praiseworthy zeal to preserve something supremely precious. God's love for his covenant people is the supremely precious thing to him. And you know, why should that be? But he reveals it. That it is. Why should it matter so much to him to be in a loving relationship with you and with me? I don't know. So all God asks in return is for that loyalty to him. And this Jeroboam did not have, and this we do not have in ourselves. God's jealousy over his people is an expression of his love for them. And his sovereign purpose that he will be with them forever and ever on his holy mountain. Zechariah says, I am zealous, I am jealous for Zion with a great jealousy. I am jealous 
for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts. One day, he says, Jerusalem will be called the faithful city. And talking about God's dwelling with his people, as we learned this morning, by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who dwells in us and makes us his home. And God has accomplished that by his sovereign power. God sentences Jeroboam to an awful sentence. He says, I will cut off from Jeroboam every male, and I will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. And this is the sentencing upon covenant breaking and idolatry. And it goes on to say in verse 11, anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city and the dogs shall eat, and anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat, for the Lord has spoken it. Someone has said this is a vulgar prophecy because the King James, uh, as over against the ESV, translates uh, more literally, him that pisseth against the wall. Referring to all of Jeroboam's male descendants as those who really only know how to leave urine stains and smells and they are treated as they are, like dung. And they will have no honor, no words of eulogy, not any burial. And to be unburied in biblical understanding is to be cursed. And so Jeroboam's, all of his male descendants are cursed to this kind of horrible death. Horrible. To be treated like dung be swept up and gotten rid of and burned. What an awful image of what, it, what hell is. To be eternally swept up by God as something that is detestable, something to be removed from your presence, is what hell is. It is a sentence upon Jeroboam's posterity. And so Jeroboam's wife leaves there with these words, when your feet enter the city, the child shall die. If you were a mother, what would you do after hearing those words? You wrestle with that, don't you? He's not given any name. Told immediately, when you go, when you enter the city, your child shall die. You might be tempted to go somewhere else. She goes home, and she, her child dies. What a sentence. What an awful sentence. And yet, in the midst of this sentence, there is an unusual mercy. And I come then to my third point. Chapter 14 begins by telling us about the sickness of a young child. He is mentioned by name. He's very sick and he's close to death. And in verses 12 and 13, Jeroboam's wife is ordered to go home. And she does, and her child dies. And yet there is this 
unusual element in this chapter, something just sort of like a crack through the darkness where light comes through. And it is said of this child that he will be mourned. He will be buried. Out of all of the sons of Jeroboam, he will be mourned by all Israel. And he will be buried. Why? Well, he was the heir apparent, probably. But more importantly, the text tells us, because in him, because in him, verse 13, in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel, in the house of Jeroboam. All of this dung that has just been described is now in contrast to this precious one, this little child. And uh, it's a good reminder to us, you know, adults and those of us who are older, not to forget children. Because God sees into the hearts of this little one. He sees something that he finds especially good something precious in him. You remember that it was said of Noah about the time when God was about to destroy all of the world. But the Lord, Noah found favor with the Lord. In contrast to all, of, all that was about to occur, Noah found favor with the Lord. Here we're told, in contrast to all of these men who will die horrid deaths, is this precious little one in whom the Lord finds something that pleases him in the house of Jeroboam. The Lord came to his own, and his own received him not. He came to a dark house, a house under judgment. And yet, what is it that is pleasing to the Lord among those in Jeroboam's house. The Bible says in Hebrews that without faith it is impossible to please God. And so it is thought by most commentators and preachers that that which was pleasing to God in Abijah was a living faith. That he disagreed, even as a child, he disagreed with his father's actions. And he agreed and attached himself to the true worship of God in Israel, in, Ju in Judah, in Jerusalem, and at the temple. There is something pleasing in this child. And what that says is that you may be in a non-Christian home. No one in your home may know God. That was certainly the case of this young man. No one in his home knew anything about God, and yet he did. You may be in that situation where everyone around you knows nothing about the Bible, nothing about God, nothing about whatever it might be that would please the Lord, the living God. And yet God can reach down in the midst of that darkness and you can pull this pull out and create an amazingly beautiful thing. We're not given any information about this child, 
except for this, that there was something in him pleasing to the Lord. And if you are young here today, please hear this. If you have a living faith in the God of the Bible, God sees that, and he is pleased. Oh, how I wish you would hear that. And how I wish that you will continue to love and believe the Bible and love and believe the God of the Bible and place your faith in Jesus Christ. But what was the mercy toward Abijah? Abijah died. And normally, we would say, well, what kind of mercy is that? It is this, that at that moment, he was ushered into the very presence of God. And I love the statement of Matthew Henry on this. He says, those that are distinguished by divine grace shall be distinguished by divine providence. Divine providence, sickness, death. Matthew Henry continues, this hopeful child dies first of all the family. For God often takes those soonest whom he loves most. God often takes those soonest whom he loves the most. God loved Abijah, and he took him for the purposes that were known to him because he loved him. And he would have him to be with him, not with Jeroboam. How we need to remember this. God has his own reasons, his own purposes. And in the midst of judgment, in the midst of the darkness, God opens a crack of light, of grace, into the very heart and life of this young child, who of all of the sons of Jeroboam, mourned, is grieved, is buried, but in the presence of Christ, he rejoices forever. Oh, the grace of God. It shines through even in the darkest time. The lesson of this chapter is, remember, remember the kindnesses of God to you. Walk. In response to that, we don't see any sign of that in Jeroboam. We don't see any sign of that in Jeroboam's wife. But respond to his kindness to you. Respond to him in living faith, even as this young child, out of all of the sons of Jeroboam, did so wonderfully. May it be that God would so work in our hearts in the same way. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we bow before you who are the living God, who sees all and knows all. And it is our desire to not have pretense in your presence. 
not to pretend to be someone that we're not, not to think that we are able to fool the one who has eyes so pure and holy. O Lord, may it be that you would shine your light into our hearts, giving us a living faith, that you would see something in us that you have created, that you have given, that is your own gift, but that you would see something in us that is pleasing to you. And Lord, we do ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a hymn of response. Let's join together and sing.